high school. Is that is on, is it on now? Can you hear me? All right, good. Okay, uh, right. Thank you. I think we need we, we better pray right before something else happens. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning uh, for bringing us here. Thank you, Lord, for the just beautiful weather and uh, your awesome creation. It is uh, truly magnificent to behold as we consider the works of your hands. And Lord, even when we come to the Word of God, we see the work of your hand in giving us your mind, giving us the Scripture, so we don't have to be in the dark about the God who created us and what he wants us to do and what he wants us to know. So I pray, Lord, every time we hear the word of God read, taught, preached, that you would advance us in our knowledge and wisdom of the Lord and about your plan. And I pray, Lord, truly, we would learn to think biblically about everything. And I pray that you would start doing that with us today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's take our Bibles this morning. What I'd like to do uh, this morning is a little, uh, to go back to the Gospel of Mark and to glean from the Gospel of Mark eight characteristics of authentic Christ-like disciples. Eight characteristics of authentic Christ-like disciples. Now, after studying through the Gospel of Mark, from verse 1 to the last chapter, um, I would like to bring these eight specific core attitudes and behaviors to your attention, because these are the very things that the Holy Spirit is developing in every disciple of Jesus Christ. In other words, authentic disciples of Jesus will bear evidence of these character, characteristics as they grow in spiritual character formation. Now, because of the finished work of Christ, and because a believer receives the Holy Spirit of God at conversion, these eight characteristics emerge under the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit and the in conformity, of course, to the Holy Scriptures. That the Holy Spirit is developing your character in order for you, as a disciple, to serve with developing Christ-like attitudes and behaviors in everything that you do. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, we, of course, are to cooperate with him and cultivate these eight characteristics in our daily experience. Now, all the original disciples, all the original apostles, had to learn and grow in these characteristics. In other words, they cannot be bypassed. These are the very things God will instill in us. So that means that all followers of Christ will be found at developing stages, and at le different levels of Christ-likeness, these characteristics will be there. They will be evident. These are not all the characteristics the Holy Spirit is developing in us. However, 
these do give rise to further, further godly attitudes and behaviors. So this Lord's Day, let's together consider the first one. And I want to spend time on this first one because this first one is a crowning characteristic of all the rest of them. And the first characteristic is for an authentic disciple is unconditional surrendering to God's will. An unconditional surrendering to God's will. Like I just said, this will be the crowning characteristic that the Holy Spirit will be developing in the disciple's transformation. We were created to reflect God in our thinking, in our behavior, and in our relationships. Since our calling, Jesus has become our good master who is to be obeyed. Now, just take your Bibles really quickly, right in Mark chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. The first thing we're called to is simply to follow Christ and to be with him. Verse number 17 of chapter 1 says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, verse 18, they left their nets and followed him. So even in the beginning of Christ's calling, we see that there is this sense of surrendering to God's will very quickly by his disciples, at least the initial following of him. And then over to Mark chapter 8 in verse number 34, we see again in verse 34, and he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, follow me. He said to them, anyone who wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that you will endeavor to let go of anything that will hinder your availability and service to Christ. That's what a disciple does. They are willing to let go of anything and I mean anything, that will hinder your availability and service to Christ. Because the whole gospel of Mark is about service. We just saw Christ in all his glory serving from the beginning to the end, and now he's calling us to serve. Now, by way of example, if you remember the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler was unwilling to let go of what was hindering him from becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 10, in verse number 21, it says, Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, here it is, follow me. Verse 22, but at these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, 
what the rich young ruler did not recognize in his own heart was a developing very bad habit. His sinful practice and his had actually his sinful practice had become such a part of him that it had become as natural as breathing. Actually, 2 Peter, speaking of false prophets, in chapter 2, verse 14, speaks about people who are trained in greed. It says they're having eyes full of adultery that never ceases from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accused children. That word trained is the term that we get gymnastics from. Gymnasio. It means to exercise. It means to train. In other words, a heart that has been exercised in greed is one that has faithfully practiced greed so that greediness had, be, had become very natural to them. It had become a part of their character, a part of the way they thought, a part of what they did. And to do that without consciously thinking about it, such a person automatically behaves greedily. So the rich young ruler was just responding to Jesus according to a well-developed habit, a well-developed way of thinking. And when God's will was presented to him, sell your possessions, give to the poor and follow me, he responded in a very, with a very sinful Response, a response that did not reflect unconditional surrender to God's will, but reflected an unconditional surrender to his own will, to his own thinking. And that's what it says in Scripture, that when he heard that, he went away grieving, for he had owned much property. In other words, he loved wealth. He loved being rich. He was not ready to give that up for anything. So therefore, Jesus goes on to say, if you don't respond in this way, well, you're not even worthy to be my disciples. Jesus also called us back in Mark chapter 1 to become fishers of men. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, and they, of course, left their nets and followed him. This whole image of fishers of men is connected, actually, to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 16 and verse 14 to 21, which reads, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore to their, them to their land which I gave to their fathers. And then in verse number 16 it says, Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, 
declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. So this is what the Lord promises to Israel, but he promises this to them only after he holds judgment on them. And the reason why God holds judgment on them, it's told to us in Jeremiah that they had infested the land with detestable idols and abominations. And so God would bring upon them the Babylonian captivity. And after that was done, though, he would send out people to fish for his people all over the world. The context speaks of God's judgment for Judah because her idols have polluted the land, and God's judgment is in the form of, of course, the Babylonian exile. Once the punishment is complete, the people will experience a second exodus, a second delivery. In the context of cleansing, the Lord will send messengers to fish for his people, to fish his people back to himself. Fishing refers to the gracious restoration and purification of God's people after judgment. See, this Old Testament narrative is comparable to God's judgment of his son in his substitutionary death and is followed by the fishing of men to restoration with him, again, in the context of cleansing. A disciple who are both justified and in the process of being purified, Jesus' followers are called by him to point others, in other words, they become fishers of men, to point others in word and in deed to restoration in Christ and purification based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, that's what the Lord calls us to do. He calls us to this unconditional surrender to follow him and then ultimately to become fishers of men. But how is unconditional surrender to God maintained and sustained? Now, this becomes a very practical thing for us. The first thing is that unconditional surrender to God's will is maintained by a transformed mind. That's how it is maintained. Because the ways of God are so opposed to the ways of sinful man, the mind of the disciple is under constant transformation. Now remember, in Mark, when Jesus said to Peter, in front of all his disciples in John, in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, in the middle of the passage, it says, turning around, seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. And this is what he said, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now, we can't really put all the blame on Peter because we all have the same problem. The problem is we bring a lot of baggage into the Christian walk, into the Christian life, in our mind that needs to be completely changed. I have said before that whatever you knew about God before you became a believer is all wrong. 
until you come to Christ. And then the Word of God rearranges everything so we think correctly about who God is. So we must take, all take this to heart that there are basically two ways of looking at things, God's way or man's way. The two ways of looking at things leads to two different directions. We therefore need our minds directed and bent towards God's will in our intentions, in our words, in our actions, which must align and agree with God's word, or we just give in to the way we always used to think or the way the world thinks. So Satan chose to put his poisonous fangs into Peter's mind and produce a false understanding of Jesus' mission. Peter, of course, making himself a tool of Satan, being swayed to look at things from the vantage points of the world or the old ways or even Satan himself. The tempter, of course, will sometimes speak to us in a voice of a well-meaning friend, but an unsaved friend. However, if that friend is not measuring things with the word of God, then they would possess a wisdom that does not come from above, whose source is not God. And of course, they would possess then an earthly demonic wisdom that has been, of course, twisted and turned by the wicked one himself. Then, of course, in the end, it would be unreliable for looking at things from God's perspective. So, then that a, the transformation of the mind will be essential for following the Lord's instructions. There's no way you and I can unconditionally surrender to God's will unless our minds are being transformed. It will just not take place. And that just goes to show that the Lord does not bypass your mind. He actually spends a lot of time on your mind. In fact, when you think about the spiritual battle, the battle is about your mind. It's about your thoughts. It's about the way you think. It's about how you conceive and perceive things. And that, in turn, is going to show how you do things, how you conclude things. The Apostle Paul exhorts believers to do the same thing where he tells us in Romans chapter 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So following Jesus means doing the will of God. And doing the will of God is only accomplished with a transformed mind. Jesus told his disciples back in Mark chapter 3, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. But before doing the will of God, there must first be belief. Because action is based on belief. The two, two great themes taught in Scripture are, what are we to believe concerning God? 
And the second would be, what is the duty associated with such knowledge and such faith? There are two basic categories that come to light from these themes. The first category is where we need to exercise discernment in regard to truth and error in relation to what we believe about God. And the second category is that of the right and wrong in relation to how we act, that is, to know and do the will of God. Can we actually do that? Can we know how to act? Can we know the things that we're doing that are actually things that not only please God, but are characteristics produced by the Spirit of God? So we must first know the truth of God and then the will of God. They cannot be reversed because the will of God comes out of the character of God. So we must know who God is. Now, maybe you have the same question that Pilate had. What is truth? Well, here's a simple definition drawn from what the Bible teaches. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, the glory, and the being of God. So that means that truth basically is theological. It's a theological concept. We must think rightly about God because what we believe about him necessarily impacts what we do. Our thoughts of God shape our service for him. When we think wrong thoughts about God, we soon serve him in the wrong ways as well and with the wrong attitudes. In other words, that a believer who is supposed to be serving God, ends up being very, very bitter in their relationships with people, have somehow gotten off track to what pleases God in their attitude. See, they have somehow moved away from what it means to understand who God is and then to live according to his character. It was A.W. Tozer who presented a challenge to all Christians in his little effective book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you never read that book, you should get it and read it because it is a very good book on the character of God. His challenge was for believers to elevate their concept of God until it is worthy of him and until it is an accurate reflection of him from the word of God. Now, let's examine a passage of Scripture that was penned by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. I'd like you to turn there, verse 1 and 2. But I want you to, as you turn there, I want you to understand this, that the Apostle Paul did not pen these words in chapter 12 until he laid a solid foundation of truth about the knowledge of God. Now, anybody who read and studied the book of Romans realizes that is quite a heavy book. It is filled with incredible, deep theology. But when that book gets a hold of you, you will be different 
because you will come out of the study of that particular book with an understanding about God that will change the way you think. So, this truth about what God thinks is found in Romans, about what he has done, about his plan of redemption, about who he is, about what he has revealed of himself in Scripture, and only after that doctrine has been well established does he show the steps to understand and obey God's will. And we find those steps in Romans chapter 12. Now, these steps are not separated, but are actually interwoven with each other. It's not like, well, I can do step one and not step two, or I can do step one and three and not step one. It's, they're, they are a package. They go together. So we should be working throughout our lives on all these steps all at the same time. Now, what is the first step? Look, look at Romans chapter 12. The first step is this, that, of course, if I am going to be a disciple who unconditionally surrenders to God's will, then this step will be very important. Step one would be there must be a presentation of our bodies, of, of our members to God. Notice in verse number one, of Romans chapter 12. It says to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul is saying to us, listen, now that you understand a good amount of doctrine, now it's time for your service. But he just doesn't go, say go out and serve. He says this is how you serve. This is how you prepare yourself for service. You present your bodies. Of course, your bodies are not just the physical part of you. You present your mind, your emotions, your will to God. And after a whole, our whole body has been presented to God by a voluntary, voluntary act, all these roads into our being are now opened only to God. So a living sacrifice means our bodies are to be presented like those animals in the Old Testament. Paul often used this expression, your body's a living slaughter sacrifice. When the Old Testament sacrifices were offered, they all ended up dead. So there's kind of an oxymoron here going on. Now, when the believer offers up his body, he begins to really live. He offers up himself to God so God can live through him. So he can actually serve the way God wants that person to serve. So when the spirit controls the believer's body, the victory resulting from Calvary is made good in our experience. All deadness is displaced as a triumphant life of the Lord Jesus and is expressed through the members of the believer's body. It's like what Galatians tells us. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. See, formally, those believers thus called on to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice were dead in trespasses and sins. They could not serve God. They could not offer up their bodies to God because they already offered up their bodies to sin and to their own passions and evil passions and desires. And so had yielded their members as servants to iniquity. But now that they are quickened by the Spirit of God and risen with Christ, they now walk in newness of life. And in fact, when you become a believer, you become more alive than you ever were because all the switches are turned on. So once the sacrifice is complete, these bodies not only live, but they partake of a higher life. They partake of a holy life. They partake of a Christ-like life. And remember, a holy sacrifice was acceptable to God because it was brought into the presence of God properly. It changed God's attitude toward the sinful worshiper. And instead of God having wrath on that worshiper, he only had mercy on them. And so, in other words, when we give our bodies up to be this living sacrifice to God, what is the motivation for our offering? If you notice in verse number 1 of chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's the motivation. That, that's what brings me to the place that, listen, I am doing this because God was merciful to me. He didn't give me what I deserved. I deserved judgment. I deserved, deserved wrath, but he didn't do that. So, in other words, in my mind, before I serve God, I am understanding this is God's attitude towards me. He is merciful to me. I'm one of his kids. I am in his family. I'm in, I am in his kingdom. And so, this is the way I ought to think when I come to my Lord to offer myself up to service. Now, my mind is cleansed. I'm cleansed of the defilement, and the sinner is now forgiven and restored to fellowship with God. So a holy sacrifice means we are set apart and devoted to God. That is, that is of course, a delight to him. That is acceptable to him. Our bodies are to be surrendered to God for his righteous use. See, that, according to the scripture, is reasonable worship. Why is it reasonable worship? Because it's the way God prescribed. This is what God told us to do. To worship God with our bodies is as rational as to worship him with our souls and, of course, with our minds. So that is the first step. So consider yourself when you come to God. Have you? Come to him, offering yourself to him. Matter of fact, this is something we don't do just once in a while. We do this every day. Every day we come to him, offering, Lord, here I am. Take me, heart, mind, soul, my strength. It's, I'm your sacrifice. And I'm your sacrifice because you were merciful to me. Now use me however you see fit. Use me 
to do your work. So my life in my thinking, in my words, in my actions are pleasing in your sight. See, that's what real worship is beyond gathered worship. This is Monday morning worship. This is Tuesday all the way through the end of the week worship that you're constantly mindful of this particular step, that it's a conscious presentation of yourself to God for his service. But here's the second step in verse number two of Romans chapter 12. See, there must be a separation of ourselves from this present age to God. It says this in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. This word conformed means to be shaped by, to live after the pattern of. It is interesting here that we have a command Stop being shaped by the thinking of the world system. Stop living after the pattern of the age. See, worldliness is the very opposite of thinking rightly about God. And yet, when we come into the Christian life, is our mind filled with worldly thoughts? It is nothing but worldly thoughts. And that doesn't go away just because you believed in Jesus Christ and now the second day it's all gone. All that luggage, all that baggage is still in your mind. So your mind, of course, has to be transformed. But before that, there is this command not to allow the world to continue to dictate to you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Ian Murray, in his book, Evangelicalism Divided, gave a real good definition of worldliness. Listen to what he said, and I quote, Worldliness is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things based on the material and the present results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worthy to suffer for it. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols, and it is, it is at war with God. That's what worldliness is. It is completely the opposite of what the Lord is doing with us. So the Bible is saying, do not be veneered with the world when you're a Christian underneath. See, Christians are not to be conformed by what marks and characterizes this stretch of time in which they live. We are instead to continually shun conformity during the entire course of our life because we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. So believers must make a deliberate decision to place themselves at God's disposal repeatedly and not at the world's pragmatic worldview. 
In other words, that pragmatic worldview is, if it works, God must be behind it. But you know what? That's the furthest thing from the truth, because it's very difficult to measure things from the world's perspective about what God is doing. See, the world looks just for the results, and the Scripture is not the arbiter of what is actually true. The Scripture ought to be the arbiter of what is true and what is error. When we do that, then we will be hedging against worldliness, not only seeping back into our mind, but the worldliness that's presently in our mind to be driven out. All right, so we give our bodies consciously to God as a living sacrifice, and then we make sure that we are not being pushed into the mold of the world. But the third step in verse number 2 of chapter 12 is this, but be transformed where? By the renewing of your mind. So this third step, there must be a transformation of our minds continually. We must dedicate ourselves to knowing and understanding God's word as it is given to us in the Bible. If you are to discern God's will, then we must have our minds transformed. The Christian undergoes a kind of change because of knowing truth, the truth of God, as found in a consistent, regular exposure to the word of God. So this process, where does it take place? It takes place in our minds. For it's in our thought life that controls our attitudes. It's our thought life that controls our feelings. It's our thought life that controls our actions. So we are to let our lives be changed from the inside out. And brethren, how much our minds have been opposed to God before Christ. John Calvin said, Indeed, nothing can be more true than that the renewal of the mind is necessary for successful inquiry into every part of the will of God. The natural man is in everything opposed to the mind of God. So here is a renewal of the believer's mental powers. Our body life is to be evidenced of the constant metamorphosis. Actually, the, the actual Greek word used here for transformed is metamorphosis. Of course, that means to be changed in form, to be changed in character. An example is the caterpillar, which undergoes a metamorphosis in its cocoon and emerges a glorious butterfly. The same creature which enters this filmy tomb eventually emerges, but change, the change is so remarkable that it cannot be recognized at the, as the same creature. It is this kind of change that the Holy Spirit wishes to work in the life of a believer. But to do it, he must have control of the body and free access to the mind, that the Holy Spirit wants to etch the likeness of Christ into our characters. Of course, we call this 
sanctification, right? This is the practical sanctification that God has called us to. But remember, sanctification is a cooperation with the Spirit of God that we want to be transformed, and part of that transformation is having the Word of God change our minds. So this is accomplished by the renewing of one's mind by the Word of God. See, the mind is the, the organ of moral thinking and knowing, and when it is renewed, it no longer thinks, understands, or judges as it once did. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. So we'll no longer be fit, we'll no longer fit into the world's mold and its ways. It'll be quite uncomfortable once the, the mind is transformed but we will have an increasing insight into the divine perspective of things. Our whole outlook, our whole experience will change. See, this is where God's bringing us from conversion. Do you see that happening in your life? Do you see that you are completely different today than the day that you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you see that? Do you see those changes that the Spirit of God is making in your life? And are you cooperating, consciously cooperating with Him about the areas that need changing? Are you identifying in your own thoughts worldly thinking? Are you identifying in your own actions things that need to be corrected? In your words, things that need to be altered in the way you say things? In your body language, all these things are things God is doing in our life to make us completely different than the way we were. Now, why doesn't a Christian not think as he once did? It's because their mind is being transformed. It is being renewed by the word of God. It minds the things of the spirit, which it never did before. And it also ceases minding the things of the flesh, which it always did. So the transforming of the mind is so the will of God or what is willed by God can be apprehended by us and actually done by us. So only a yielded mind can desire, discover, and choose God's will. See, the renewed mind, once it is renewed and it is being renewed on a continual basis, then Romans 12, verse number 2, the latter part of it becomes a reality to us that you may prove what the will of God is. Isn't that the question today? What is God's will? See, the problem with that is that most people don't really want to know what God's prescriptive will is. They want to know God's secret will. But you know what? God doesn't, that God doesn't give us his secret will. That's his. He only gives us what we call the prescriptive will of God. Prescriptive will of God is the revealed will of God. It is the will of God found in the word of God. So in other words, the renewed mind begins to test out the will of God. It cannot test out the will of God until it is being renewed. And when it does, 
it will find out what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. See, the renewed mind is bent on finding out and following God's will, which it never did before. The renewed mind knows how to obey God, which it didn't do before, because it is now shaped and governed by the revealed will of God found in the Bible. So you're not going to be able to have your mind transformed apart from a constant, regular exposure to the teaching and preaching and reading and study of the Word of God. You cannot set your Bible aside and think that this process is going to take place. It is not going to take place unless the Word of God is part of the process. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. So maybe this is the dilemma of so many Christians that they are so concerned and worried about the future of the who and the what and the where. Instead, the Christians should be asking and answering questions in league with his or her dedication to God, such as how to test out the will of God. Good questions to find out what the re revealed word actually says about the will of God. When the heart and mind is renewed and transformed, it will bring forth good fruit. It will bring forth fruit that is pleasing to God. And it will ask questions like, is the thing that I'm going to do really good for me? And does it bring glory to God? A question like, is it well-pleasing to God? In other words, my attitudes today, have they been well-pleasing to God? In the things that I've been thinking in my imagination, have they been pleasing to God? My feelings, have my feelings been altered and changed by truth? Or somehow is my feelings before truth? That I do things because I feel like doing them instead of I do things because this is what the truth says to do. One of the greatest hindrance, I believe, of sanctification is that we are too often people who go to our feelings about what we ought to do with no foundation on why we should do them, except we feel we ought to. There's no way to measure that. But if the truth is altering our feelings, if the truth is molding our feelings, then we will actually learn how to feel things correctly. Lord, in my motives, have they been pleasing to you today? In my actions as it says in the word of God. Am I making sure that my feelings are not the standard for deciding the revealed will of God? And then be asking things like, is it complete in and of itself what I'm about to do? In other words, is it something that will bring about Christ-likeness in my life or will it hinder my growth in godliness? If so, I am going to decide not to do some things, not to go some places that I've gone, not to listen to some people that I've listened to. See, the word 
is the criterion and measuring stick for knowing what is good and well-pleasing and advances maturity in my life. So we discover that from his word alone, we are subject to all conceptions that come from God, that are good for us, that are pleasing to him, that are complete and whole. Every test made without the word of God must be considered a deceptive test and ends up being the wrong advice and the wrong counsel. That the renewed mind does not want to disregard God's will. It wants to know it and it wants to do it. And a constant renewal of the mind is how unconditional surrender to God will be maintained. But how will unconditional surrender, surrendering to God be sustained? Well, it will be sustained by meeting the conditions of discipleship. Now, I would like you to go back to Mark chapter 8 for a moment. And let me look at this particular side of it. Because in Mark chapter 8, in verse number 34... The word of God tells us this, and he summoned the crowd and with his disciples and said to them, if any one wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, the call to discipleship is a universal call. It applies to all of Jesus' disciples, not just to a select few and not just to the, to the apostles. Now, before Jesus lays down the condition of a real disciple, he shows that there are two directions one's desires can follow again. First, one can have the desire to follow after Christ. That is the narrow road. And, of course, one can take another direction and follow the broad road, which is the easy road. And so, of course, he doesn't want us to follow the broad road. He wants, to follow, he wants us to follow the narrow road, which is following him. So Jesus sets before the disciples three conditions for the path of true discipleship. And the first condition being in verse number 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. It means to turn yourself off in the sense, to deny, to disown, to repudiate yourself. And what do we turn off? We turn off actually the sinful self, the person who has their own interests at the center and not God's interests. That's how we started off with the remark to Peter or to Peter in, that Jesus gave. The Gospel of Luke said this needs to be done on a daily basis. Now, this self-denial takes many shapes and is experienced in many ways, and it's different for every single person. For some, it may mean leaving a job or even, uh, in, even in this case, 
family for a time, as the, as the disciples had done, to do the work of God, to serve God. For others, it may be for someone who is dealing and struggling with pride, it may mean daily renouncing of the desire for status and honor, that they're very conscious of that. For the greedy, it may mean daily renouncing the appetite for wealth, the working the extra hour to make more money, to going to a place in which they can constantly be figuring out how to increase their wealth. For the complacent, it may mean daily renouncing of the way of ease. For the faint-hearted, it may mean daily abandoning the craving for security. For the fretting or the person who likes to worry all the time, it means daily abandoning the desire to get caught in that vicious cycle of worry where it's nothing else can get in there except this, this tape that never stops. For the violent, it may mean a daily uh, repudiation of the desire to have revenge on someone. See, Jesus' disciples know specifically what hinders them from giving their lives over to God. So then unconditional surrender is really expressed in a disciple's daily self-denial. And then, of course, he tells us also the second condition was to take up his cross. And remember, the cross is a symbol of execution, a symbol of suffering and death. It is an image of extreme repugnance and an instrument of cruelty, of pain, of dehumanization, of shame. And of course, the Romans compelled the condemned criminal to bear the cross being to the place of execution, to take up his cross meant that someone was going to die. And like his Lord, each disciple must bear his own cross. It is the same as denial of self, but this is the shame and the suffering a disciple assumes because they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the symbol of the cross has really one objective. It ruthlessly intends to bring death to self, death to the natural sinful self, death to the rebel voice inside of us that is constantly going against God's will, death to the sinful nature that does not want to obey God. See, there must be put the sinful agony, the, the sinful rebel inside of us must be put to a slow agonizing death, that Jesus insisted that Christians must deny self within them. Again, by self, he meant the old desires, the old ways, the old practices, the old habitual patterns that were acquired before conversion. They all must go. Every one of them must go. You and I must learn and practice to say no to what we used to say yes to, and usually in an unconscious way. And of course, our society with the current winds of our culture uh, blowing really very hard against us is not signaling us to deny ourselves. 
what really tempts us and lures us every day to self-indulgence. Indulge yourself is the message of the world, not self-denial. So the disciple must no longer make his own interest and desires the supreme concern of his life, but must turn away from idolatry, the idolatry specifically of self-centeredness. As a disciple of Jesus Christ grows in spiritual maturity, more self-denial is required. That means more death to self-importance, more death to self-satisfaction, more death to self-absorption, more death to self-advancement, more death to self-independence or dependence. See, the painful blow to the inner self are really daily realities to all believers of every generation. The reality of this principle of discipleship is brought out in other Bible passages of scriptures, like where it says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the Lord of glory has called all his disciples to a life of self-denial to a cross. And Jesus' disciples know what sin so easily hinders them from giving their lives over to God. So then unconditional surrender is, is expressed in a disciple's daily cross-bearing. This means it is absolutely impossible to be a Christian without self-denial. And Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then there's one other condition of true discipleship the Lord gave, and he said, again, where I started off, it ends off, and follow me. So this command denotes a continual persevering obedience to follow after the leadership of Jesus Christ, that Jesus goes to his death and all his disciples who follow behind him must also face the death of self. And as a believer follows behind Christ and bears his cross, he will feel the weight, its pain, its suffering, its conflict, its struggle, especially when the believer endeavors to hold fast to the plain teaching of Scripture while they're living in this world. And then they endeavor to practice, actually practice putting off sin and mortifying the deeds of the body and putting on righteousness. They will feel the struggle. When they endeavor to live righteously in the middle of a wicked and immoral and willful generation, they will feel the struggle. When they endeavor to hold to a simple faith, which the world actually ridicules as too restrictive and narrow and even foolish, they will feel the struggle. 
when they endeavor to put on the armor of God and stand against the wiles and schemes and deceptions of the devil, when they battle with him with truth, they will feel the struggle. When they endeavor to live differently, holy and godly lives than the normal standard of the world, they will feel the struggle. And when they endeavor to lose their lives, if needful, for Christ's sake and the gospel, they will feel the struggle. So then Jesus' real disciples are characterized by an unconditional surrender to God. Now, why? Well, because they really have learned the reality of life. And what is the reality of life? Well, the reality of life is not the outward, it's not the earthly life which, with its pleasure, pleasures and its aims, it's not the life that I, I gain temporal gain, but it is the inward spiritual life that begins at the point of conversion and continues on the rest of my life. It is a, it is, it's living life not for temporal gain, but for eternal gain. See, these conditions may at first glance seem negative, However, there is a great positive we gain from becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis offered a helpful observation that must be taken into consideration. Lewis observed, when God talks of their losing their, their selves, he means only abandoning, abandoning the clamor of self-will. You are not self-denying to make yourself small. No, you are essentially transferring control to Jesus Christ and letting him be at the center of your life. And you think that is an easy shift? It is not. It is a shift that only comes by you giving yourself as a dedication to God and living sacrifice, it comes only by you not being conformed to this world, and it comes by your mind being transformed by the word of God. Lewis went on to say, after one abandons the clamor of self-will and surrenders control to Jesus, the disciple is given back their personality, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever, that the work of God in and through Christ to pursue us in love restores us to wholeness. It restores us to personhood, that salvation means, among many other things, restoration to the image of God that was destroyed by sin, restoration through Christ then liberates us to live indiv individually and corporately as true image bearers of God himself. In other words, disciples gain their life back and become whole in their personhood and in their significance, restored by God's spirit to actually a real true existence. I know why I'm alive. I know what I'm supposed to do while I live. I know where I'm going. I know the God I serve. See, we didn't know any of those things before, and because of that, we really were lost in this 
muddle of what it means to be human and what it means to have individuality. But when we come to Christ, it's getting restored. What sin destroyed, Christ is making whole again. So see, the goal of discipleship is to be fully redeemed, transformed, and living as a radiant model to others of God's unmerited mercy. We have to see, we have to see the tough challenges of self-denial and carrying one's cross, not as goals in themselves, but as the means to the goal. And what is the goal? To be free to follow Christ, which you were never free to follow him before. That's the goal. Free to follow Christ. And as the scripture tells us, temporary gain brings only eternal loss, where he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And temporary loss, that brings eternal gain, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. And for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit forfeit his soul. See, there will never be any lasting sense of satisfaction or true gain from any earthly reward, no matter what it is. If you and I gain all the world, all its power, all its wealth, all its pleasure, all its glory, all its sensation, all its enjoyment, all its achievements, all its satisfaction, you will will still be at a great loss. And that would be an an unprofitable waste of time. But who shall a man give? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What can a person do to gain his eternal soul back if it's forfeited? What can be equivalent to the soul, the eternal soul of a person? What price can be paid to get the soul back from a human perspective? The answer is nothing. There's no price. There's no answer once the soul is forfeited. The soul is unspeakably valuable because it is created in the image of God. It is eternal. It will live past the death of our bodies. We will have souls for which we shall have to give an account to God. The only way the soul can be kept safe in time and in eternity is to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the answer. To deny Jesus, to prefer this world, to turn from him, is to stand helpless and condemned in the day of judgment. And of course, Jesus gives a solemn warning that if you ignore the conditions of true discipleship, if you ignore the steps of being transformed in your mind, then this is what he says 
for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation. Of course, he says in verse 38, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So you see that for you and I, This is the life that God called us to. This is the cost of discipleship. And this is a characteristic that is one of the first that arises from the Gospel of Mark and leads into the seven other ones. I will not do seven messages on the other ones. I will be very quick with the other ones, spend a little time on them, but I really want to get through just a couple messages. But I want to lay this foundation because some of you may have heard but may have never heard that this is the very way that the Lord is going to take us from point A to point B. So this first characteristic of an authentic disciple is unconditional surrender to God's will. This is a given all the time for all believers, no matter who you are, how long you've been a believer, this is always operative. And it's maintained by a transformed mind. It's sustained by self-denial and carrying one's cross to be freed up to follow Christ. That's the goal. So today, I'm going to start with, end with the question I started with. Are you endeavoring to let go of anything that is hindering your availability and service to Christ? Are you? And do you know what those things are that hinder you from serving Christ and making yourself available? You've got to pinpoint what they are, and then you have to remove them so you can fully and freely serve Christ in whatever capacity the Lord's called you to with your spiritual gifts in the church body so the gospel can go out to the world. If not, we won't be able to carry out the second reason why we're saved, And that's to become fishers of men. See, we never get there because we haven't done these first things. Because that's what the call of the church is, to grow healthy as a body so we can get the gospel to those who've never heard it. So we can be fishers of men. So we can bring them back to Christ so they can be converted, cleansed, and then offered as a living sacrifice to the Lord. All right, that's it this morning for that. And so let me just have a word of prayer, and uh, I'll close. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Father, for the word of God. I thank you for the complexity of it, Lord, and yet at the same time, the simplicity of it. And I pray, Lord, as we heard the truth this morning, I ask you, Lord, that you would take it, that you'll remind us of it every single day. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly be people that would be characterized by unconditional surrendering to God's will. And Lord, show us this morning where that's not happening. And I pray, Lord, we would take care of it as the revealed will of God illuminates our mind to show us what pleases you, what doesn't please you, that you would, we would identify it so, Lord, your will would be done in our life. Your good, your acceptable, and your perfect will. Your revealed will. 
And Lord, I'll thank you for all that you have and will do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.